years. It's lies. And the numbers are making me dizzy. And, you know, now, now instead of trying not to come, I'm trying not to think. And I can't stop. I mean, I mean we've all been there, right? <laughs> is that this is the uh breakdown scene is this in the prison where this is happening yes yes he's he's been uh this is tom wilkinson's character and michael clayton and uh he's recounting his moment of epiphany which involved a couple red-headed lithuanian strippers or hookers um hooker. i think you would call them a hooker yeah, yeah. do you think it's natural redhead for lithuania i wouldn't really <laughs> pair those two together yeah. you know i think uh, it's do some not. research yeah I think it's definitely dyed hair. All right, we're sending Tommy to a strip club with Lithuanian strippers. Okay, cool. You come back with us with some research, all right? <laughs> yeah, I'll take some notes. <laughs> Hello, welcome to Film Trace. This is a podcast where we trace the life of a film from conception to production, all the way to its release and reception. We have two special guests today, uh, Tommy and Tim. Uh, why don't you guys introduce yourself and your podcast? Go for it. Hey, guys. We're uh, Tommy and Tim. We're from the Haven't Seen It podcast. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter, social media, and everything like that. Um, our podcast is basically we cover a film that the other person has never watched before. So, for example, uh, this month we're going to be covering The Terminator, which Tim has never seen, and uh, Forrest Gump, which I've never seen somehow. So. Oh, nice. <laughs> nice. <Yeah. laughs> Incredible. They're also... Very loose rules, too. So we just, uh, if it's a new release or something we want to cover, sure. Okay, whatever. Like, yeah, we both haven't seen it. Yeah, it does, doesn't it. matter. So <laughs> yeah. we make it up as we go. You guys been doing it for how long? Uh, we started about six months ago, back in December, uh, with Home Alone uh, 2, to be exact. And it's been fun ever since. We've been loving doing it. So Awesome. <laughs> well, thanks for being on the podcast. This is going to be a good one. Uh, so we're doing continuing our cycle of existential thrillers. Um, we are doing Michael Clayton from 2007. And then the Chaser film today is The Hunt from 2012, the Danish film. Uh, Chris, yeah, let's start me. out with... Hmm, Michael Clayton, what does it mean to you? Oh, man. This was kind of, along with the game, which that episode will come out in a little bit, um, was kind of like a no-brainer for this cycle of films, correct? Mutually? 100%. We, we yeah. had to do it. We yeah, do it's it. just, yeah. Uh, it's it's a, it's interesting in that it be, has become kind of a quintessential 2000s film, but at the time, people didn't seem to think much of it, including myself. And uh, I really enjoyed the experience in the movie theater. I saw it when it came out and was like, oh, yeah, that's like a really like tightly wound and interesting, like rewatchable uh, suspense film. You know, it's got intrigue, um, both from like the legal thriller end of things, but it's also kind of beyond that. It's a little more elevated than your standard, you know, Grisham procedural or something like that. Yeah. And it also is like a powerhouse uh, set of performances that wound up surprisingly, I think, um, even though I would probably also agree it's deserved uh, Oscar winning performance from Tilda Swinton um, in a supporting role. So it's uh, it, it's it's a strange little genre movie that happened to also become something bigger than I think anybody anticipated, including the filmmaker himself, Tony Gilroy. We'll get into where he came up with this idea and some research behind it and our uh, feelings about how it stands, uh, you know, 15 years later, uh, especially with our guests. Um, I know at least one of you guys, Tommy, right, hasn't 
hadn't seen it before this one? Yeah, uh, this is my first time ever watching this one. Um, so I just had to watch it at work, which was an interesting choice for a work watch. Um, <laughs> so like, like I was saying earlier to you guys, uh, thank God I have headphones because uh, Tom Wilkinson screaming about like uh, fucking jerking off and everything like that. But uh, certainly it, it was interesting to say the least. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of workplace do you have? What what, what are you doing? <laughs> this is, uh, I, want, so, I want some context. So, yeah, yeah. So uh, I'm trying to make it so my employer doesn't hear this part. But uh, yes. I work for a company where um, pretty it's much I have my speaking. own little. Yeah, I have my own little private office. Uh, so you know, there's people uh, during the workday. If it's slower at the end of the day, I can put on a movie, and I have my little tablet right there, and no one really comes into my office and like asks me anything or like checks uh, on me. Good. So I work yeah, from home, I so I can do out. that all day long. <laughs> yeah, that's the exact the greatest part about working from home. You can just put on a movie all day. Like I was a kid that uh, would watch, you know, uh, do homework in front of the TV. So uh, my ADD brain is great for that. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. And what about uh, you, Tim? Have you, yeah, Tim, you seen, seen uh, film before? I hadn't seen either of these. I was oh, really impressed by both of them, to be completely honest. I finished Michael Clayton about a half an hour ago. Uh, wow. Yeah, so I'm it coming in really good. fresh. Yeah, it's <laughs> really, it does stay with you. It's It's like really terrific performances and it's so tense throughout the entire movie which i really love i love like feel like a lot of times in modern movies today like the tension is there but it's there for the sake of being there but like this the whole way through you're not exactly sure where each direction is going to go and, and i found it really compelling watch and then um the hunt also another good movie but we'll get to that later yeah, no, it's, uh, I don't know where, how I came to this movie and I'm thinking about it. Uh, you, I can't believe you still listen to theater, Chris. This would be oh, yeah. a you movie to see in a theater. <laughs> you just see everything. It's unbelievable. Right. Um, it was, I mean, yeah, it was uh, post-college pre-kids. So I saw, uh, okay. so I saw freaking fever pitch in the theater. So, okay. Wow. That's sad. I've also seen fever pitch in the theaters. That was, <laughs> yeah. Wait, who's the we lead exist. Is Jimmy yeah. Fallon the lead in that or am I making this up? <laughs> Jimmy yes. Fallon and Drew Barry. Oh, yeah. It was the brief, brief time period where people wanted to have Jimmy right. Fallon be an actor. Uh, <laughs> Adapted yeah. from Nick, Nick Hornby's novel about yes, soccer. Yes, but okay. Yeah, about the Red yeah. Sox. Um, but yeah, I did not see this in the theater. This is one of those movies. We were talking about this in, in sort of the pre-show whatever about like cable movies. They just come on the TV and you just start yes. watching them. I think this is one of them for me. Uh, I think it was on HBR or something, and I started watching. I was like, what the hell is this? It <laughs> um, actually happened to me with a lot of movies, uh, but this one, it, it is a type of film where you catch a single scene. And I remember the scene. It's Tom Wilkinson in the Milwaukee jail or whatever, and Michael Clayton, George Clooney's there to sort of pick him up, and he starts doing that soliloquy or whatever. And yeah, I was like, well, I got to mm-hmm. stay for this, right? Like, I have to. Yes. Um, and right <laughs> since then, I've probably seen this movie maybe 20 times it's definitely one of my favorite films from that decade without a doubt which is a little bit bizarre and you you mentioned this already chris it is not a film a a grandiose film it's just not but there's something about it the way that it clicks the performance is everything where it definitely becomes more than the sum of its parts and has especially over the last i would say five years become oh wow this is this is a special film from that decade that we kind of slept on when it came out and it was definitely slept on because when you know you look at like sort of the background of this movie and stuff the way that it was marketed the way that they talked about it and i remember this and i remember sort of the press around it it's kind of a legal thriller right supposed to be a legal thriller uh is it a legal thriller would you guys call it a legal thriller would you call it um 
I, I, I guess that would be like the best. Like, yeah, really on Wikipedia when you pull it up, it says legal thriller immediately. <laughs> it just so, doesn't. I, but I think we're uh, so trained with like Pelican Brief and like yeah. all the Grisham stuff that like it doesn't really have that style at all to it. Sure, it's about legal issues and it's definitely a thriller, but it's way more noiry. And like, there's so much more going on here that I, when I saw it, the last thing I thought about was like, oh, this is about law. Right, because it's really about like a fixer and a down and out guy. Um, I don't know. What did you guys react to immediately when you saw it? Because you both saw it for the first time. Like, what stood out to you as being maybe a little bit different than a normal legal thriller that you've seen before? Well, I mean, like, uh, as terms of legal thriller, it doesn't take place in any like courtroom, really. I mean, like yeah, the only exactly, really yeah. scenes of them like being like in a deposition is Tom Wilkinson stripping naked. Um, so, <laughs> uh, but other than that, um, you know, it didn't really say, like you said, I guess thriller just in general, more like it, where like, you know, the opening code of the movie is the, you know, car being blown up and you're, you know, immediately get sucked in. And you're like, what is going on right here? <laughs> I think it's I think it's really well paced in terms of because it's it's like relentless. But then there's these points in like the middle where he's at like his family's party um, and where he bumps into his brother again. Like you just get to unravel more of the character and why he has why he is the way he is. And I think it really works in like the benefit of this because like everybody's kind of a, a scumbag in this in, you know what i mean yeah. like deposition big company right like uh, on paper they're not super likable people but he gives such like he george clooney is just always magnetic and likable he could be that's just his charm yeah. and like just being able to learn more about the character while always keeping the tension up because you have to deal with this bar situation on the other side too, getting the money for that, I think really allowed us to like explore the character a little more in a different sense than like a Grisham novel or anything like that, where it's usually through like a romantic angle or, or yeah. something like that, where you're exploring a character. So I thought that was different and uh, like, just like the pacing of it and like, I felt like it was like really well edited and like the script was fantastic too. Yeah, it's definitely, I think someone said in a review, it's like a screenwriter's movie. It definitely totally. sort of feels oh, yeah. that way. Chris, where did, this, where did this idea come from? Yeah, so Tony Gilroy, um, kind of a not very well known name, uh, but he had kind of been a lifer in the industry. Uh, parents were in business, so nepotism's a factor. He gets his foot in the door by um, writing the screenplay again, basically just like because he wanted to get his foot in the door um, for the cutting edge back in '92. Okay. Wait, is that the uh, finger skating movie? The, yeah, the ice skating romance. Oh my um, god! <laughs> so memorable. And, yeah, uh, I mean, it did it ended up having a, a sequel twenty years later, but it's insane that you would have uh, basically this you know, beginning of his career. And then he kind of dives headfirst into the world of thrillers and action movies. He's probably best known for um, writing all of the Bourne uh, trilogy films. Um, and then perhaps after that, after uh, Michael Clayton, he's become very well known in certain circles because he uh, did basically the cleanup work for Rogue One, a Star Wars story um, for Gareth Edwards after, you know, Disney wanted uh, tons of reshoots and rewritten scenes and a film that we have already covered on the podcast, uh, Dan Nightcrawler uh, with Jake oh, Gyllenhaal. Yes. It's a great movie. Yes. Oh, amazing movie. Also, just like one of those thrillers, right, that is obviously 
very suspenseful, but doesn't quite fit the mold of what we typically think a thriller to be, right? Um, so what actually happened is uh, one of the scripts that he was uh, most known for in the 90s was actually The Devil's Advocate. And so that's what got him interested in the world of lawyers. Uh, it's a bad film, but it is uh, very <laughs> <One> entertaining. <film. laughs> and it uh, kind of got him thinking more in the lines of like trying to combine that very uh, archetypal lawyer movie from the 90s with the paranoia thrillers of the 70s. And he was he got really stuck on this. There's one scene in Devil's Advocate that is essentially kind of the jumping off point for Michael Clayton. You know, a number of years later, he had been working on the script for nearly a decade uh, before it came to fruition. And it was that uh, opening scene at, as the monologue is playing from Tom Wilkinson's character in the background as voiceover. And you slowly have a tracking shot into the room full of, you know, hundreds of, of lawyers feverishly working into the middle of the night trying to jam through a case, right? Some kind of settlement. Uh, and that's pretty much all we know. And he wanted to kind of sit with that idea combined with what he kind of saw was one of the more common tropes of those 70s paranoia thrillers is like having a hero that is inarguably a good person, except they have kind of gone past the point of possible redemption right? Like they know that they've been doing bad stuff, but they have like, you know, deep within them, some kind of goodness that has been squandered, that has been diminished over the years. And they're trying to have one last shot, one last opportunity to uh, redeem themselves, even though it's essentially, you know, pretty depressing because they've already done a lifetime of shit. Yeah. I mean, what do we make of Michael Clayton as a character? Is he, we define him as an anti-hero. Is that how we define him? What do you guys think? Yeah, I, I think I think so. In terms of like anti-hero, where like pretty much this guy isn't you know, a good person at first when he's talking about in the beginning where he's trying to get someone off who literally did like a hit and run right there. And right. That's your introduction to him, where it's just like this is almost like the opening case for him, where it's just like okay, this is just a little side adventure, but just immediately shows you like what kind of guy we're dealing with. He's not exactly helping the best of the people right here, and his conscience probably isn't the greatest either. So. I feel like he's yeah, he's like an anti-hero, but in terms of especially like those '70s movies, I feel like he's on like the lighter side, like much closer to hero than like a lot of '70s thrillers, like anti-heroes. Like I'm thinking uh, Travis uh, from Taxi Driver, like anti-hero. It's like well, he's on a different scale than Michael Clayton, um, and like George Clooney, I feel like was like the perfect casting for this because he's not too far gone where you need him to be like really extreme, but he gets to have that like smoothness that makes you like him even if you feel like what he's doing isn't ethical um and then as he goes along working with arthur you know you discover that he has more of a heart and he's really just trying to find a way out of this position because he's been here too long and he and he's done with it and his way out blew up in his face that he invested in there are two 70s thrillers that tend to come up a lot in Gilroy's interviews when talking about the inspiration for the film. And I mean, Taxi Driver is obviously a, a, a very um, common touch point, but he was thinking of this combination of both Three Days of a Condor with Robert Redford and Point Blank with Lee Marvin. And so you have this character that essentially, like, you, you know, of course, there's empathy for Travis and a lot of those very kind of deep seated, especially New York based um, thriller films from the 70s. But in terms of like Michael Clayton, you've got someone that on the one hand is like literally 
getting away with, you know, getting off criminals, like you said, drunk drivers and people in power that need to stay in power uh, by, you know, because they're a, a, a valuable client to the firm, etc. But then also somebody that's essentially a whistleblower, like in Three Days of the Condor, or the insider, right? For a more modern example, you have somebody that is basically for you know, forced to reckon with like this point of no return. Like if I don't blow the whistle on this thing, then I'm officially a bad guy. And I think that's where so much of the film's thrills come in, especially cause like what you guys had mentioned earlier, there's so much that is like, um, unpredictable about where it's going to go, especially because he's c surrounded with other supporting characters that are on both sides of it. You know, on one hand, do you think that he's going to follow Tom Wilkinson into the, maniac light or he's going to um you know just do what Sidney pollock tells him to because like we also mentioned earlier he's very much in debt from gambling and his brother's restaurant and it's you never know what turn it's going to take and that's like the definition of a thriller what about this uh, you talking about that kind of makes me think about something and obviously we're going to spoil the ending of the movie here because you should have mm -hmm. seen it by now um so it's on netflix it's on Netflix. Uh, it's very popular on Netflix too. Um, so you pointed out something to me and maybe, and sometimes I miss plot points and I got to go back and rethink about something. Is Michael Clayton going to be a whistleblower unless they go directly after him and kind of try and kill him? Is he acting in a way where he's going to release something like all the copies that um, Arthur had made and sort of the, what is the realm of conquest sort of yeah. copy booklet that he made? Is he indicating that he's going to actually blow the whistle on these people or isn't? I can't remember if I'm being totally frank with you guys, because like the, it, it's kind of an interesting sort of thing. Does he become the hero because someone tries to kill him or mm -hmm. is he really making a conscious effort to be a, you know, a good quote unquote moral person and expose these people because the reason I say this is the threat of going bankrupt and being threatened by the Irish, you know, loan shark and his brother, who's, you know, an alcoholic and, you know, in a real bind and kind of put him there. Um, he's essentially paid off by the law firm as a bonus. So that problem's going away, right? Hopefully to some degree, mm -hmm. but I guess that's the big question. Like how much of a hero is he here? Do you guys think? Well, um, I mean, I think in the end when he's talking to Tilda Swinton, he literally says to her, like, you stupid fuck, like, why'd you try and kill me? I could have helped you. Um, right. I could have been That's, oh, man, it hits different, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. The more you think about it, it's just like, okay, like, was this really the only reason? But um, I think his kid being in the movie and, like, prominently in the movie at many yes. points is one reason of him trying to just do better for his kid, where, like, he talks to his kid about... Um, the drug addict brother where he's just like, you're not going to be like this. I know you're going to have potential. I think that he doesn't want his kid to go down the same path that even he has gone. Um, so I think that it's just trying pretty much that's his conscience right there. His little kid. <laughs> I think he's like a man that's like accepted what he's done. He's not trying to be uh, like remorseful for it, but he's trying to set the next chapter of his life up in a way that he can maybe live differently, which is why I like how, movie just kind of ends with him leaving right after they get arrested and he's just he's looking to get the next foot of his chapter and leaving that behind him but i think like while he's in this mode he's not necessarily trying to do the right thing he's just trying to do the right thing for him so it's more in like a selfish way than anything mm -hmm. yeah he i think he bring up a 
great points about both that moment in the cab where he's kind of like taking the, like he just gets, says $50, just drive, um, which <laughs> could in, and in, in so many other movies that could have just come off as like super like contrite and condescending. But in this case, because Clooney is the exact kind of guy for the job, Denzel almost had the role by the way, which would have made it a very different film. I think. Oh, okay. Um, Interesting. A little he, more intense. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He is kind of resigned to the fact that like his story's already been written beside you know, except for this little coda, which he like immediately pulls himself out of. Like he could have hung around and gleefully watched, you know, Tilda Swinton get cuffed and everything, but he's walking away because, like you said, his son, um, which is another like piece of the puzzle that could have easily come across as really, you know dumb and uh uh sappy but he play Clooney plays it just right enough to make it feel like yeah he's he's not necessarily a quote good dad but he's the a dad that wishes that he was better and he has this opportunity and i mean it's the horses right going back to your point dan about um you know whether or not he's like trying to avoid getting killed but like if he hadn't stepped out because the horses made him think about what his son was telling him regarding the original story, Realm and Conquest. Yeah. And, uh, and so because he, he had, he'd like, what gave into some kind of impulse, you know, after dealing with this, uh, drunk rich guy, um, who basically just committed, uh, you know, attempted vehicular manslaughter, um, whether or not he's going to keep going down this path. And it's just like one of those things where it's like one of the best things about movies is being able to put those kinds of really, you know, at first randomly seeming symbols. And I mean, I don't think I got it until the third or fourth viewing, really. Um, I definitely didn't get my, I mean, I remember my wife fell asleep during the film in the theater and she yeah. woke up and she said, horses, explosions, really? Good night. And went back to sleep. And, <laughs> and it's just like, <laughs> right. So it, it, it's just, it, it's such a great balance of, um, you know, layers and, confusing but then also just like really strong moral compass but a, like a realistic moral compass that we don't usually see in these kinds of legal thrillers that you know very much work in the binary of you know the 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 noble defendant and the you know uh accused victim yeah, yeah I mean, this is uh, go ahead no go ahead oh so, uh, this is definitely a movie i think that like um now like we said this is both our first watch I think this is going to be um, rewarding upon rewatch over yes. and over again. Yeah. Oh, this yeah. is one thing that I had to study this at first. Like literally I watched the movie and then I had to go on Wikipedia and review the plot to like, remember the stuff, the horses yeah. and stuff like that. Like I definitely didn't catch it on my first watch. So I can't wait to watch this again. Yeah. It's definitely, yeah. As someone who's been watching it, I don't know, I guess for the last decade, like a lot. It, yeah. It's every viewing just comes back and adds another layer to it. And it's funny you mentioned the horse scene. Cause that's what I wanted to bring up. And it was like, are we all in agreement that, that it, like Chris, you think it 100% works, it sounds like. Yeah. I but, think it mostly works. What do I, <laughs> uh, Tim and Tom, what do you guys think? I mean, is that the only thing I would say about it is it seems a little bit out of the tone of the movie to me, just a little bit, just a hair. Almost um, like mystical in a way. Um, where it's just yeah, like, like magical realism, something like that, right? And what do you guys yeah, think? I mean, yeah. You think it works 100% or? 
Uh, well, like, like I said, um, I didn't really notice that at first on first watch. Um, so it wasn't until like just reviewing back where it's like, okay, like I get that now. And now on rewatch, I'm going to find that and be like, okay, I think it works personally. <laughs> Once you notice that at least. <laughs> yeah. Now like hearing it from you. Cause like you're, I'm like trying to keep up with like this, the story yeah. as well. Like missing up on those like little thematic things and like the placement of them. Like it was not completely noticeable. Like you guys are making great points here. When I watch this again, probably at some point this week, I'll end up just throwing this on again because I want to just like recapture this movie. I I feel like I'll be able to at least pick that out a lot more. But like for right now, like I felt like at least for like a first time viewer watching it, it does it's not it doesn't take you out of the movie and it it feels like it fits in it. But you know, from a thematic standpoint, I don't necess I have to rewatch it to be able to one hundred percent confirm for you. Uh, yeah. If you're saying it took you three or four rewatches, you know, uh, oh, to, yeah, to yeah. get those it points. A long time. I think the first couple times I saw it, I was kind of like, uh, Chris's wife I was like, wait, what? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, what's going on? <laughs> right. And I mean, I think that one puzzle piece that ma helps make that scene work is with uh, Tom Wilkinson having that phone call with the son. And like yes. showing his great interest in Realm and Conquest, uh, in com in contrast to how Michael's like barely paying attention, pretty much just not paying attention when his son is telling him about uh, the novel um, while they're you know in the car trying to get from point A to point B and uh, figure out who's following him and all that stuff, or trying to find out where Arthur is, whatever. And like that that kind of triangulation is really smart because it's definitely something that you know. Uh, I didn't catch the first maybe two or three times, and then I, it really hit me hard rewatching it the other day. Maybe because uh, I'm a dad now and can like pick up on I, like I pick up way more on like father son relationships yeah. uh, <laughs> in movies. Um, but I also was really caught up, I think, in this watch, just like being like, okay, so this kid's 15 years older, so he's probably like a one uh, or two L at a law school. So Henry Clayton, the movie should come <laughs> out in about. <laughs> no, <it's laughs> Henry Clayton, the miniseries. Come on, yeah, it's gonna yeah, be a yeah, miniseries. Give us the legacy sequel. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, here's a question. Okay, so we, it's existential thrillers is the cycle, right? And then the theme for this uh, cycle. The thriller part of this movie, I got to say, is just wonderful. I mean, the specifically the scene where they kill Arthur is one of my favorite yeah. oh, oh, yeah. man scenes yeah. ever in film. Ever. Because Anthony it Michael is, Hall. What the hell? Yeah, it's so <laughs> understated. It's so specific. And if I had to guess how this stuff actually goes down in the world, especially that corporate espionage whatever world, that's to me how it would happen. It would be just it so, so sudden. Yeah, it's so sudden and specific and drab. Yeah, there's mm -hmm. there's nothing bombastic about it. They just you know they shock him once, carry him into the bathroom, stick a needle in him, and he's dead. Two minutes later, yeah, um, it's one of those things on um, first watch um, with this where um, I really didn't know what happened at first. I was like, wait, 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 he's dead. What? <laughs> so I had to go back like I just put back like 10, 15 seconds on Netflix or whatever just to be like confirm. Like I just saw Tom Wilkinson die on screen. <laughs> Yeah. Also, I appreciate that the hitmen were taken out of the diehard school of bad guys. You know what I mean? Like they just have that like gruff, like Eastern European look to them. I'm like, all right, yeah, yeah, yeah. The the military, yeah, yeah, ex-military, of course, ex-military. And the way they talk, I one of my favorite scenes in the movie, and this is this is why I love the writing so much, is the scene between uh, um, Tilda Swinton, 
Yes. And the main hitman guy, the lead guy, and she goes, you know, she goes like, take care of it. She's like, we, we work in absolutes. It's like that back and forth. It was like, oh man, this is so good. Yeah. Um, what about, so the, I, would you guys agree that the, the, the thriller part of this is very strong pretty much throughout? Yes. Definitely. I mean, it, it's definitely the through line of like Tom Wilkinson pretty much. Just like at first I thought this was a movie of them just trying to get Tom Wilkinson in control. And like, is this guy going to fuck up everything? Uh, yeah. So this is just a great through line. <laughs> Yeah, I like how it sh- how it shifts after uh, Tom Wilkinson uh, is murdered, and then it becomes way more about that death for like the for the close of the movie versus um, like at the beginning where you're like, are we going to get him under control? Are we going to be able to make sure that these this you know class action lawsuit goes according to the plan of of the company? No, hundred percent. What about? the existential part of this. So when we say existential, we will find it a little bit. It's sort of like, uh, you know, questioning the world and questioning yourself and who in your place in the world and who you are. How do we feel this film sort of handles that? And does it sort of rise to that level that we could call it existential? I mean, I think like I was saying earlier at the top of the show, it really does feel elevated from your average legal thriller because of that aspect to it. And I think it's pretty ingenious for Gilroy to kind of combine the essentials um, of a more modern legal thriller with that more paranoia feeling feeling of the seventies, because that's essentially what um, I feel like was missing for a lot of the two thousands was these kinds of, you know, adult dramas thrillers, whatever, that had some kind of weight to them that weren't just pigeonholed as, like, Oscar bait. Like, it was legitimately a surprise, you know, that, like, he got a screenplay nomination, um, deservedly so, and Swinton ended up winning the statue, uh, and yet it feels like just on the edge, like, tight wire act between genre piece and, you know, character study. And so I think it's definitely there. I think you... It would be hard-pressed to not be able to see that, but I do think, like we've mentioned a few times now, it's something that isn't necessarily apparent until you do the rewatches, until you really you know, yeah. see that journey of Michael's character. Well, I think that's what helps this movie like age really well, too, though, is because you can watch it again and again and pick up on new things. Like I find that essential for any kind of rewatchable movie, is that like you're going to w- spend the two hours watching this movie again, and you're going to come away with more and more from it than you did on your first viewing. Um, and like, I'm basically finished this movie and I was like, I think I need to rewatch this movie again. Like, I feel like I'm going to pick up on a little bit more if I watch it again. Yeah. I was almost have to watch it a second time uh, before we recorded. Uh, but this is one of those movies that like, uh, legal thrillers, you know, sometimes are very straightforward where it's just like, this guy is clearly a piece of shit. And this guy's, uh, you know, like the hero or ever, like I'm trying to think like presumed innocence or something like that, where it seems <laughs> kind of straightforward from a little bit. Um, but this movie really lets his characters breathe and, you know, just like talk about stuff, right? Whether Tom Wilkinson was crazy or not. And it really gets in that moral ing- ambiguity. Can't say that word right now. <laughs> um, ambiguity. <laughs> ambiguity. That's what it is. Uh, so, yeah, exactly. Um, but, you know, especially the scenes with him and his son where it's just, that's essentially a lot of the existential like parts of this movie. We're just yeah. talking about, like, you know, this is where it's going to happen. Or even with Tom Mokasin, where it's just like, okay, yeah, he was crazy and stripped in, a, you know, in the middle of a court hearing, but what if he was right? What, what if yeah. you know, we're doing this wrong? 
And he was right. He came across as yeah. crazy, but he's right. It's like, you know, I guess the, is that Shakespearean where the fool is right or something? Mm-hmm. Um, right. You're a history, you're an English teacher, Chris. You're still right. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, and it's, it's arguably like part of Greek tragedy too, right? That kind yeah. of like the, the realization that comes too late. And so it still begets tragedy. And, uh, I mean, that's, that's another thing is like Gilroy's having his cake and eat it too, because you get to see, you know, unfortunately Arthur dies, uh, but Michael gets to walk away at the end. So it's just, it's really balanced, um, yeah. pretty beautifully. And, uh, I think that one, if, if there's one piece we haven't really hit on yet, it's this, um, notion that you have, uh, very different kind of acting styles happening throughout the film. Uh, that add to that balance and it all it also adds to that feeling where it like almost you, you're wondering when things are going to spin out of control that unpredictability factor like uh gilroy talked about to the seattle times back when the film came out about how uh, wilkinson is one of those kind of very traditional character actors that just like give me the script let me learn lines and then i'll go into it and he can like blow you away um with the with the right part whereas tilda swinton is more kind of like workhorse background knowledge like a lot of those shots of her like getting dressed or like sniffing her armpits like that's that's actually not um in the script it's edited in after the fact because she wanted to do these kinds of things to get in the head of this character so you've got a, a really kind of uh, widespread. And then Clooney is probably somewhere in the middle. Like he, I've seen some criticisms where it's like, oh yeah, he's kind of doing what he always does is just like the, the cool headed guy where he's pained, but isn't going to let anybody see it. But, um, I don't know. I think I, I, I've never really loved Clooney as an actor, um, until I've watched this movie a few times where it's like, it seems like he's hitting all those beats with the right amount of, uh, um, you know, sincerity, uh, but never, you know, being triacally and, everything also what i really liked about this with the tilda swinton introduction it was a good point to bring up there um one of the things i noticed because like i'm watching her character and her repeating like the lines that she's going to put in this deposition or whatever the record yeah. the thing they were recording and you're wondering okay is she recording this to come uh like is, is this because she's weighing with the morals of what she's going to have to discuss or is she just trying to make sure she's as sharp as she can be and as you learn she's very ruthless and has no issues there, but it, I like how it sets that up where you're not exactly sure where she's going to land in that term, because mm-hmm. that's oftentimes something that they'll put in movies. So it's a nice little misdirection of like introducing that character. I felt like, yeah, I, I love how they pretty much introduce Tilda in general, where the first thing you see is her just like sweating in the bathroom. <laughs> then, um, but then also the scene you were just talking about of her rehearsing a scene over and over again, it reminded me a lot of like, Elizabeth Holmes type of person where it's just like, you know, like the yeah, pharmaceutical I mean, like CEO or whatever, totally. where just over and over and over again, we could see that like almost is, is this what Tilda is doing herself before? Like did uh, Tony Gilroy just like shoot the camera while she was rehearsing practically? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it seems like it. Um, it's funny you mentioned Clooney, uh, Chris, because I just watched Peacemaker. Oh God. Uh, from 1998. <laughs> uh, me and Bob watched it as a fun uh, Okay, so, so not, not the DC show. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 no. And uh, he does his normal thing in that, but it's so different, right? Like, yeah. George Clooney's normal shtick is like charming, funny, self, right. you know, cocky. Here, it's very flat. And you feel a lot of that energy that he brings out in a movie like Peacemaker on in his smile. That's all underneath now, Michael Clayton. 
it mm-hmm. still might be there, but it sort of bubbles up here and there, but it's like a, a huge undercurrent. And that's like the whole movie, right? It's like, it's a textbook kind of thriller on some level, but it's the emotional and um, the emotional arc and the existential undercurrent, like you guys have been saying, that really brings it to another level and makes it, I would say, like a classic yeah. film of that time period. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about our chaser film. This one's going right. to be a little bit tough. Uh, yeah. The Hunt, <laughs> 2012 Danish drama uh, from Thomas Vinterberg. Um, how do we want to start this one, not Chris? Oh, can, can I start? Because yeah, I went in completely blind. Oh, I, I, I apologize. No, I mean, I was like, <laughs> "What did you sign us up into here? Why is this about pedof- pedophilia? Uh, what is going on here?" <laughs> like, I had no idea what I was. It's like a movie, The Hunt. I'm like, okay, I assume like he gets misinterpreted, and then he spends the second half of the movie getting chased. And yes, yes. While I was wrong on that front, I mean, um, metaphorically, I, you're right. Yeah. Well, meta- well, we'll get to. We'll get to the ending but i really appreciated how like very grounded and like real it felt like like it like it felt so like this is what would happen in a small german or danish town wherever it's taking place and um I, I ended up really appreciating i had to take some pause breaks in there where i was just like okay i need a minute just to Get my thoughts here for for a moment because very it's intense film. Very, it's very intense with like very, like the most serious subject matter you can right. have in that kind of a uh, a drama. But it was uh, it was a really powerful movie, really well acted. Um, like f- enough humor in there too to keep like the yeah, levity yeah. Mm-hmm. as well, which is something I I appreciate in a movie like that because if it was just completely straight the entire way through, I it would have been much tougher watch. Um, and yeah, that's, that's where I wanted to start was just like, I went in blind. I'd recommend not going into the hunt blind. That would be my recommendation. Look up what this movie is. <laughs> yeah. It's funny yeah. you mentioned that because this popped up, has been popping up on my radar for a decade and I'd never oh. seen it before. And I have always avoided it because of the subject matter. I knew the subject matter. I was like, eh, I'm not ready for it. Not ready for it. Uh, and now having to see it, I'm, Wow, I, sh- I should have watched this a long time ago. The, I, I don't know about you. Chris, did you see this when it came out? Um, I can't, saw it on video. Okay. Um, and only because uh, my wife is a f- big Thomas Vinterberg fan. Yeah, um, okay. He, so my wife took Danish in college and cool. saw the celebration in college. Are you guys familiar with Vinterberg's other films? Um, I don't think I've seen any of the other ones. I haven't seen any of the other ones. Okay. Um, so, I mean, the it's interesting now in 2022 because he's now a, uh, an Oscar winner for Best uh, International Feature. He won for another round, another movie with yes. Mads Mikkelsen. It's on my watch list, another it's, round. It's yeah. so good. And uh, But The Celebration is how I got introduced to him, which is a movie where uh, it's not too much of a spoiler since it happens in the first 30 minutes. And again, it's a movie from the 90s. So pretty old now, uh, where essentially a family secret of pedophilia comes out into the open um, during a family reunion celebration. And so essentially, uh, this film, The Hunt, is a reaction or a follow-up in spirit to that film. Um, And I do have to take off, and I I know that's very suspicious timing, especially (laughs) because... Especially because I'm a teacher, and oh, why would you want to talk about pedophilia? I, yeah, I, I couldn't understand that at all. But um, 
Uh, I think, uh, you know, uh, after have, having seen him win for another round, and Mads Mikkelsen's now an international star, and uh, we go back to this film, 10-year anniversary, and it proves to us that uh, cancel culture is real, right? Oh, no. <laughs> okay, thanks, okay I'm going to go. I got to go. <laughs> I will Thanks for leaving us with that one. Yeah, yeah landed on a great note. <laughs> <laughs> Enjoy your rest of the conversation. I can't wait to hear what you guys thought about it. But uh, yeah, it's a very effective movie, but it gives me a stomach ache. Bye bye. Right, see you, Chris. Thank <laughs> you. Uh, okay, so uh, you, you guys brought up a good point about how real it feels, right? Mm-hmm. So Vinterberg was part, it started Dogma 95, which was a Danish film movement um, with Lars Van Trier, right? And so that was all about taking cinema out of the CGI, out of the studio system, making it super indie, super straightforward. It had a whole set of rules to it, right? Um, so I think that translates here. It didn't... Uh, I think the other thing, too, that uh, what you guys were talking about, this is all based on true stories. Mm-hmm. This entire film, and he says in multiple interviews that he had to water it down. How severe the reaction was among the local town how much the children were manipulated in what they were saying about being sexually abused. They were lying, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it basically just says, yeah, I kind of had to water this whole thing down because it's way, way worse in reality. I mean, this like, is... when you hear that, it's like, oh, my God, right? <laughs> this movie could have gotten off the rails very fast. That was one of the first things I was thinking about. Yeah. So it's great that, like, you know, they focus on the mad uh, character, yeah. You know, from the beginning, that, that he's pretty much just like the protagonist in the frame of view. Because, you know, I don't think I want to watch the version of this movie where you're not sure the whole entire time if Mads is innocent or not. Because, um, yes, true. With that, with that little, like, part, a little nugget right there, it would just be like very, even more sickly, more disturbing. And then, like, you can almost imagine like a shitty, like, schlocky version where at the end of the movie, you find out the twist that Mads actually did or something. And it's no, like, I, I was it, very it, scared that was going to happen. Mm-hmm. I, seen it. I was yeah. like, oh no. Listen, I'm going to come out as anti pedophilia. You know, I'm, I'm not, a, not a, personally not a fan. Uh, I'd actually call it one of the sickest crimes a human could ever commit. Yeah. I think you're right like if they ever if they tried to do like you can't do it with a crime like that it's not the audience will not recept to the movie well and what they ended up doing with the ending which i won't we don't have to discuss this moment i think it works way more effectively about the entire theme and message of the movie ver- versus you know some alternate ending where it's like no he actually did it you know i was actually at the not to spoil the ending ending but when he's no, when they're at when they're at that cabin and he picks up um, what's her name, Clara, again Clara, to yeah. cross the thing. I was like, "Oh God! Like, why are you? You can't never touch that girl again. Why are you even d- doing that?" And and I was that's like when I started shaking when they went on the hunt. I was like, "Oh, okay. Is he gonna die here? Because somebody saw him like carrying her again. And, like yeah. the thought crosses their mind again. Um, and then like the ending itself um, with the gunshot. And then in this in the thing, I was talking with Tommy about it." So let me ask you, Dan. Who do you think? Who do you think is the shooter? Do you think there's any specific shooter in mind, or do you think it's more just a message? I think it's more. I, I view it as more a message. But if you had to sort of, you know, if I had to be a detective and think who it was, I would say like Clara's brother, um, the older brother. That's who, who I thought. Yeah, because there's. A, the way that they set up the sort of um, lead up to her making the accusation where he's playing with his friend on the iPad and they're watching pornography and they show it to Clara 
and they say, you know, rod, rod in, in, in Danish or whatever. And that's what she ends up saying to the teacher. There's a setup there that I don't know if there's ever really the payoff that like he might have been or his friend have been the source of her sort of disturbance, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But there's also the scene that comes to mind is that they're playing with the nativity scene, I think, or something like that. And he starts crying. And then she walks out into the snow. Do you guys remember that scene? Yes. I couldn't, I guess I didn't pick up on what that was all about. I was linking that back to the iPad scene or whatever. I don't know. What do you guys, what did you guys think about that? My my interpretation, um, this might be more of a hot hot take, but I think I might've been honestly just mad. Just like PTSD or imagination right there. Um, That's my interpretation. Uh, So I think that like, Either way, other to interpret the ending, I think that like pretty much what it shows is that Matt's life is never going to be normal again, and that he is just personally just so racked with like, you know, literally entering a grocery store and getting the living shit kicked out of him. Like oh he's God. never going to be normal again. He's never. So I, I personally think the bullet was just him imagining because he's in this situation where that could have happened easily, and so I think yeah, <laughs> all in his head. I felt like when you, you know, when he's giving the son, the gun to the son at the, at the lodge, like right at the beginning of the ending and they, he looks around and like Theo's not paying attention to him. And then like, uh, yeah. the, uh, the brother was kind of paying attention to him, but like the, the son, the, uh, that he was looking like at him kind of suspiciously. I think it's kind of a mix. And I think it was more to just send the message and they did the right thing of not exposing who the shooter was whether because then you can just have these open-ended discussions about it think about it but i think everybody knows the message is clear is that like the target will always be on his back no matter what no matter how innocent he was proven and that people have accepted him back into the community that still doesn't go away from people the fact that he was accused of pedophilia it's just there's always gonna be someone yeah there's always gonna be someone out there that's just like like uh, i think the court system was wrong you definitely did it um, yeah. Mads did an interview in like 2012, um, mm-hmm. apparently, uh, with Collider where on the ending where pretty much he said that, you know, pretty much th- this guy can't stay there. It doesn't matter how much they try to accept him, they'll never be able to fully accept him. Like, you know, th- it's always going to be lingering in the back of their head. Like, remember when he was accused of this thing. Yeah. I mean, I think that the, the main message of the movie to me is a very, very cynical one and a mm-hmm. scary one. And it's one where I find it interesting. And of course, Chris drops the bomb when he leaves about cancel culture and woke culture and all that kind of stuff. (laughs) But I do find it very fascinating that this movie came out before all of that. Right. So this came out in 2012. The Me Too movement wasn't really taking off until about 2015, 2016 ish. And then cancer, cancel culture, whatever you want to call it, kind of paralleled that in the last half of the 2010s into now, of course. I mean, what do you, it's so fascinating to me that like this guy, you know, Vinterberg was thinking about this and, you know, one of his main theses about the film is essentially that like ideas can be passed like a virus, essentially, especially socially. And we call it, you know, we would call those like memes or something like that, but this is a little bit different than a meme, right? This is, you know, an accusation that is so serious and so severe that you see the reactions of the townspeople I think you, the, the specific thing you guys brought up is that the grocery scene, none of those guys know him, right? They've never probably mm-hmm. maybe seen him once or twice or, or something. It is a small town, but they don't really know him. And to be so viscerally violent and mean uh, based on something that you heard through the grapevine 
I mean, that to me is like such an indictment of all of so- social media, right? On some level that like, yeah. you, you know, if a rumor gets out the door, what's the old line? The truth, the truth um, circles the globe by the time the truth gets out the front door. You know, it's kind of like that idea. I mean, what do you guys make of that sort of criticism that he has or sort of viewpoint? Well, um, there's one thing about the movie that almost is kind of frustrating, but in a realistic way, that you almost think that the movie could be easily solved with like a simple communication, which you try to do with um, the father. But, you know, with the taboo nature of the accusation and how shocking and like visceral that is, you understand why like like no one's giving him a fucking chance to explain himself. Just like, fuck you, you're a piece of shit. Get the fuck out of my life. And it's just kind of like scary just how like, you know, um, it's like his best friend and his best friend won't even like, sit down to talk to him about it. And, and literally everyone else in this town is pretty much just like, he's a pariah at that point. <laughs> yeah. My one thing the entire time was like, after he got out, I was like, why are you staying in this town, man? Just, you, you got to move. I, I know you grew up here, but it's, it's over. It's, it's over. You're done. You can't, you can't live there. Like if that's what Mad's point was. Um, I think, that was like, they did a really good job of establishing his character build up to that. He had friends that he was like a part of the community that he was good with the kids. But they also like, like one of the early scenes is him like helping a five-year-old wipe himself. Right. Like yeah. it puts those little things of like, he was probably a little too close with the children, you know, yeah, yeah. for people to be like, okay, yeah, this does make sense. Like that, that he did this. And I, you know, and when you have a five-year-old making an accusation like that, they don't understand the severity of those claims. And I thought the other underlying thing was, yeah, like the brother may have influenced her decision, but she had like a crush on him because her parents were always fighting. They weren't really giving her the attention she needed. Yeah. He was always there for her, helping her walk her home. And she tries to give him the kiss and the note. And she, he's like, hey, listen, you can't do that to can't kiss people like that. Why don't you go give this to one of the other boys in the class, you know? And like, that's kind of where her anger festers up because the one person in her life that's giving her attention that, that she so needs rejects her. And then when she sees that note of like the, the pornography, she gets the idea in her head to just kind of shoot it back at him, but doesn't realize how severe that accusation is. And then the way that the te- the other teacher is just like, totally believes her the entire way through. And it's like a weird line of like, how, can you really believe everybody all the way through unless you've heard the other person's side of the story? Yeah. I mean, in this case, you know, and I think based on I mean, what's funny about this movie is not funny, I should say, but probably sad is that like, I kind of stated up front, um, a famous a psychologist brought these case files to Winterberg long before it made the movie and said, Hey, you got to make a movie about this. Because it was such a widespread issue of false accusations and shared false memories that was happening with children uh, about sexual abuse. And a lot of people were getting hurt, including essentially the victims. You know, you think think of Clara in this movie, you know, like she's also a victim in this too. Because she's a kid, right? And like you said, she doesn't know what she's doing. She doesn't know that what she's saying could ruin a man's life. But she did it. And like, how does she interpret what's happening? I mean, think of the scenes where um, Marcus, Lucas's brother, goes over to their house and starts talking to them and then like, you know, erupts with anger and spits in her face, Clara's face. How is she supposed to process that? Or in the church where Lucas uh, and his best friend, her father, get into, you know, a huge fight in front of the entire village. 
Um, you know, so it's like there's victims all the way around here. It's not just Lucas. It's not just his best friend, but it's also Clara who unfortunately made the the, the false accusation. So it's there's not is there a silver lining in any of this? <laughs> not really. And it's tragic how like she tries to tell people like I yes. made a stupid mistake, and they're telling no, 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 no. Oh. You're just like misremembering or something like that like the brain's like being traumatic and like uh, things that like you can understand where the parents are coming from but just she tries to tell people and try and make the situation great but no one wants to listen to that part unfortunately could you guys see this a lot of uh, a lot of foreign films that do quite well i'm thinking of another danish film that did well called brothers uh, there's a 2004 film that got remade into a 2009 film in the u.s starring toby mcguire yeah jake gyllenhaal oh yeah i <laughs> uh, remember that so the, the american version sucked i didn't like it the Danish version is phenomenal and reminds me a lot of this movie where it's very understated, but the emotion is just like a mountain. It's overwhelming the intensity of it. Could you guys see this being like remade in the US? Could we do it here? I don't know if we could. We can do it well. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think it would be a I, I mean, there's definitely been like some like movies that have like touched that topic, but it's just very delicate and you almost would think that America would like, sense of, uh you know like make it like a little more like thrilling or something like that or just like hollywood it up a little bit you know and that wouldn't work for this i think the only closest one i can think of from an american standpoint that like focuses broadly on this subject is spotlight and it's not told from like the victim perspective it's told from the reporter's perspective so that way you're dealing with people processing emotions that they didn't have to face rather than dealing with the people that directly have to face those emotions so it's it's framed differently and when you're put in like a journalistic standpoint and you have deadlines and then like i remember at the end they had like the 9-11 thing that postponed the publishing of the of the expose right like they're able to kind of put those traditional thrilling thriller tense moments where this is doesn't do that in the t typical Hollywood way. It, it's no. tense all the way through, but it doesn't build that. Like, it's not like, it's not like a thriller at all. You know what I mean? It's just, yeah. it's very tense, very stark, very real, very grounded, which I really appreciate, especially on a subject matter like this. If it ever got made here, it would be like some really small Sundance movie with like a million dollar budget. It would never no Hollywood studio would ever fund a yeah, film as real and dry as this. You, um, you wouldn't see like the, the, you know, the American equivalent of probably like Brad Pitt or something like that or in this, you not know, no. yeah, some it, actor. <laughs> it doesn't work. out. I don't think it would really work outside of that Danish film system, like where it's like, it's that dogma movement, at least uh, remnants of the dogma movement where, yeah, it's so understated. It almost feels like documentary like, um, where it just, oh man, it, it there, there's so many scenes in it that I think emotionally are incredibly draining. But it's through the acting and the writing and just the filmmaking that they are able to create something like that. But uh, yeah, I think you guys are right. Like, there's no way the major studio system in the United States would touch this with a 10,000 foot pole. Like it's too controversial. It's too, honestly, it's too nuanced of filmmaking for them to do it because they want to round off the edges and make something that's going to make money. Uh, and this one, you know, despite the fact that, you know, this thing was shot for like, what, $4 million in, in Denmark and uh, did do quite well. Uh, at the box office for an art film did $18 million worldwide. But like, you know, in the United States and the studio system, they would want to make it for 10 million and make a hundred million dollars. Right. Which is just not going to happen for something like this. I, um, I guess maybe with streaming, you have more yeah. things that would maybe take a risk on something like this, but I, I just don't like, see it. 
you know it's like it's they would change it from pedophilia to like child abuse you know it would be they would try to cut the message of it because that it's so taboo and like i think the film does a really great point of illustrating too like like that's a different culture than the united states but people reacting there to an accused pedophile is probably very similar to how in a small town an accused pedophile would be treated as well Uh, and it shows that that like the universal disgust for that act it's it's very prominent but like the u.s film system wouldn't touch pedophilia like that they'd have to frame it some you know through a different lens to not have it be the the central focus of the movie where it's rather like what you're reporting on like in spotlight which is the only one i can really think of off the top of my head that like covers it pretty in depth yeah um the other thing i'll uh, i will mention is that like vinterberg grew up in a a commune in in denmark and he talks about how and then one of the reasons he he made a celebration in this film is that he talks about this explicitly in some of the con um interviews that he did for this movie um essentially that like he grew up in an environment where people were very open and they were naked often and he was basically like yeah i grew up around like naked dudes all the time and it was never like an issue and now i find myself in a society uh you know still his society but a, a broader society than he was in where you know any of that sort of openness um with people is kind of everything's closed off and like one of his one of his messages here is, is that because it's so closed off um it creates an environment where uh someone can be accused of something and it's such um it's such a violent reaction that all rationality is thrown out the door. Right. And you look at how this, this essentially was like an avalanche, right? She suggested something, said something, and then it was like, boom, 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 dominoes. He never had a moment to say anything. Right. And then I find ironic or strange about this is that the police end up being the saviors to him. Right. I don't know if that would happen in the United States. Well, I feel like there's enough evidence though, where like the kids that were sort of in the room be like, they took us in our, yeah, he took us in the basement to do it. And then they're like, well, he doesn't have a basement in his house. So I don't know exactly like, which I found to be like kind of smart. And his one wealthy friend with like the dad, that was the lawyer, like helping them him get off of it. But it's, it's also true. Like, you know, everybody loves to say, especially in the United States, Oh, innocent until proven guilty. It's like, well, this man was found innocent and you're still not letting him shop at your store and you're beating him up for trying to get pork chops. Oh yeah, Yeah, absolutely. In in this case, it's like guilty before proven innocent. And even still as the ending shows, he's no one's ever going to fully prove that he's uh, fully innocent. So, I mean, I'm glad the movie at least had some characters that like thought that he was innocent because this would have been even more of a tough watch if literally everyone, including his son and like his like friend and stuff like that, were all just like ridden him off and he was all by himself. Would have been depressing. That, that even might more have been depressing. a little bit too dark, right? A little bit yeah. too severe. Um, awesome. Do you guys have any closing thoughts on Michael Clayton uh, or The Hunt? Anything that comes to mind uh, about um, the films? Well, Michael Clayton, I'm definitely going to rewatch a lot. Um, yes. I can't say the same about The Hunt. <laughs> the Hunt's <laughs> that like was a dream, one and done. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I've seen it, got it out of the way. I don't need to revisit uh, feeling that depressed <laughs> in a movie. And it's not speaking on the quality of The Hunt. The Hunt is an excellent <laughs> movie, but The Hunt is not exactly for the faint of heart, and it's not the easiest of watches. So just go into that knowing if you're looking for something very serious and very real. 
Michael Clayton, I feel like, is going to become a yearly staple of my rotation where it's just going to, th- you know, I'll watch it a couple times really intensely, but then I'm doing something around the house. Yeah, yeah throw on Michael. On. Toss it on. Love it. That's great. Um, so, uh, question for you guys in your podcast, you've been doing it for like, what you said, six months. Has there mm-hmm. been a film that one of you had not seen before that has become one of your favorite movies? Hmm. Uh, well, anything that surprised I, you or anything that sort of like bowled you over? Well, I would make fun of Tommy cause he was like, scream is one of my top five favorite movies and I'd never seen it. And I just always thought of like ghost as like this silly little thing. Oh. And I really liked, I really liked scream watching it. So I was like, Tommy, I take back all my decade of shots <laughs> and view about scream. Um, we've, I, I would say like we just did Dr. Strange love yeah. very recently. And it's one of those, I think, especially in like the political climate of right now, it's like, Oh, all of this craziness existed in the sixties too. So we don't need to worry that it's something new or something yeah. relevant there. It's like those kind of refresher things. Um, I've found a really newfound appreciation for ET cause I haven't seen it in a decade plus or whatever, when we covered that and just like how marvelous that film is. And it's not, yeah, <laughs> put on the it feels like it's faded from spielberg's best list in like the modern day discussions and like from pop culture because it's not a a franchise or anything like that but just like when you rediscover some of these films you haven't watched in 10 plus years you can really find how great they are again it's it's one of those things that's been really fun about the podcast of like pretty much just checking off like things on our uh book uh pretty much just movie list where uh because of this podcast i finally saw the godfather for the first time and Obviously, it's a fucking amazing movie, and I can't wait to rewatch that. Um, one that I wasn't expecting to like as much was Legally Blonde, and um, oh yeah, because it was a movie that you know you always would see on like Comedy Central back in the day if you tune into cable, and you're like, ah, oh, whatever. But you know, the first watch, I thought yeah, this is a very fun, charming movie. I could see myself throwing this on a Sunday when it's rainy and just you know need something to kill time. So it's been fun, uh, you know, just discovering movies that like somehow I just never got around to. <laughs> Yeah, no, that that movie's fantastic. Super like light and fun, but also kind of tight and well written. It's just very, very, uh, very well written and like a really strong character in the age of like boner comedies. Yes, exactly. Where you would expect oh, more like wet t shirts and like there's the famous image of her in like the bunny costume and you, and if that's all you know, the movie you're like, oh okay, it's one of those movies. It's like no, she's like a determined, smart girl that won't take no for an answer and will put in the work to become what she wants to become. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Awesome guys. Thanks for being on our podcast. We really appreciate it. Um, Where can people find you everywhere, right? Yeah. uh, So we're on uh, Twitter, Instagram, and uh, TikTok, uh, trying to get the Gen Z's there. Um, (laughs) We tried TikTok and stuff. Yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, TikTok's not as prominent as our Twitter and Instagram. So uh, we can find us at Seen It Pod, um, and we're available on Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, pretty much anywhere you can get your podcast. And uh, so, yeah, thanks for having us. This is great. Dan, Dan and Chris, thank you so much. This was a lot of fun and two great movie recommendations. Thank you very much. Awesome. Appreciate it, guys. This has been Film Trace. <laughs>